Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Ryan Grimm, and this is Deconstructed, but if you've been listening to it for more than the last couple years, you know this wasn't originally my podcast. That title belongs to Mehdi Hassan, who has since moved on to his own cable show on MSNBC called The Mehdi Hassan Show. He's now out with a new book called Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking, which is in many ways the book he was born to write. Mehdi, welcome back to your show. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. And it's funny you should say that because a fair few people have said that and not always in a positive way. <laughs> well, they're, they're probably still a little bit sore from the last time you out-argued out them. I try, I try. Uh, so you and I uh, first met back when you were interviewing to join HuffPost UK. Yes. And it was the most quintessential Ariana Huffington moment ever. With The, the interview was. Was ha happened in a chauffeured car on the way to the airport with a random extra dude along for the ride, which in this case was me. Did you have any warning that that's how this interview was going to go down? Absolutely none. And I'm not someone, I've been blessed with the fact that I've not had to do traditional job interviews for the jobs I've had over the years. The media, as you know, Ryan, is a weird place. Mm -hmm. You know, the way we get jobs, we sometimes fall into them. It's, right. Because everybody knows you already because of your or, work. Or, right. or it's word of mouth. Right. Or it's, it's, you know, it's a connection. It's a coffee. Whatever. Formal job interviews don't really happen in our line of work that often. And I remember being, I was living in the UK and I came to visit uh, DC for another reason. And while I was there, the HuffPost folks who were trying to hire me in the UK said, hey, why don't you meet Ariana? She's in DC that weekend too. So I said, okay, hey, meet her at this hotel. So I go to the hotel thinking we're going to meet in a restaurant or a bar or in the lobby. No, apparently she's giving a speech at a conference in the hotel. Mm -hmm. You're there as the mm -hmm. DC bureau chief of the HuffPost to, I don't know what, collector, hold her hand. Who knows and what, we, yeah. And we get into a car. She comes out and says, I don't have time to talk to you because I have a flight to catch. Why don't, I'm not going to do the impression. Why don't you just jump in the car with me and come with me to Reagan Airport? I, I've got nothing else to do. I said, all right. And we sat in the backseat of the car. You were in the front. And she kind of, she interviewed me while on two phones. So she was talking mm -hmm. to me, you, the driver, and texting and emailing on two Blackberries at the same time. Uh, this is 2012, I want to say. Uh, it was, uh, it was, and she told me that she would hire me, but I would go beyond left and right, Ryan. And mm -hmm. you and I are well known for being beyond left and right. There you go. I, I remember us both uh, praying that her flight was not in Dulles. Or not, or not delayed. Like we were just hoping, like, I hope this is... And you had an interview lined up for at the airport with some guy, some former cop or some oh, criminal justice. Right. I was like, wow, that's, that's a lot of conversations going on. She... Yeah, I mean, I've had some fun conversations over the years. I'd forgotten about that one. It wasn't per se an argument, so it doesn't make it into the book. I do tell a lot of stories about fun debates and conversations and arguments I've had in this book, but uh, all of the ones I've had with Ariana are memorable. You're right. That was right. That we were we were doing actual journalism. We were meeting a source out at out at the airport you were. Um, before her flight. Uh, now that now that I remember that, I had my own perfectly Ariana Huffington interview in 2008. It was scheduled the Four Seasons. 
in Washington, you know, one of the nicest, most glamorous hotels in Washington. I show up and randomly Jose Antonio Vargas is there. Okay. Who was at the time a Washington Post reporter. Luckily, I knew him, but it's just classic that there's just going to be a random other person. Just always just, <laughs> multitasking with the meetings. But I, you know, I owe Ariana a lot because without her, I wouldn't have got to the US. Uh, because ironically, I came to the US with Al Jazeera, but originally, Ariana, I had said to Ariana, my wife's American, I'm interested in covering the American election. She said, done, move, <laughs> I'll make it happen. And then when Al Jazeera English found out, they said, well, why don't you just come to DC and we'll give you a weekly show. We've got a new studio there. So I ended up being in DC, but it all started with the kind of conversation with her. And here I am kind of uh, eight years later, eight years ago this month, Ryan, yeah. stepped foot on US soil. And at the time that you came to the Huffington Post, you were already pretty well known in the UK for your debating style. So like, when did you, when did you first realize that you were particularly good at arguing? As I say in the book, I think I realized around the dinner table with my parents and my sister, I come from a very disputatious household. Uh, the Hassan family likes to argue, perhaps argue too much, many of our visitors and guests might say. Uh, but it did give me some skills in life, as, as annoying as it made me. It did remind me of uh, the importance of being able to argue your way out of a situation, debate any topic, see more than one side to an issue. And I think that is something I say in the introduction to the book, that I will always thank my dad for this idea that you kind of take on issues and you do it in an intellectually honest way. And I, I tell the story in the book that my dad was in the, in the late 80s when people were burning uh, copies of Satanic Verses, Salman Rushdie's novel. Muslims were burning it in the streets of Bradford and were horrified by this book. My dad buys the book, reads it, and puts it on his bookshelf next to the dining table. So anytime any guests come over, they're like shocked. Why do you have this book? And my dad's like, well, you can't condemn it unless you've read it. Um, and this was the point. And that was kind of instilled in me from a very early age. You, you know, read the other side's newspapers and publications. If I'm on the left, read the right. If you're on the right, read the left. Open your minds to all sorts of arguments. And I, and I realized early on that I enjoyed doing that. I had a skill for it, a knack for it. I turn up at Oxford University in 1997, and it's a perfect place for someone like me to be because they have the Oxford Union Debating Society, the most famous debating society on planet Earth. And I kind of threw myself into debates there and, and loved it. And when I graduated from university, I knew I had no skills in life other than having a big <laughs> mouth. So the media is where I ended up. And I was hoping that the book would kind of be an easy how-to, like here's four easy steps to become just like Mehdi Hassan. But I was kind of demoralized uh, by how much you talk about how extensive preparation is key <laughs> to everything. And I was like, just just show me where the club is so I can beat somebody up. But no, that, that's not <laughs> what it's going to be. But which means, I guess, that there's you can't eat anybody else's lunch for free would be the be the way to put that. Um, but I think I think well, I say yes and no. So I would say yes in the sense that it has annoyed me over the years that people think you can just wing this stuff. Mm -hmm. They assume that what those of us who do it are doing is winging it, which we're not. And they assume that they can do it by winging it and cutting corners, which they can't. And then they end up making a fool of themselves. And I've seen that over the years as a producer in television, as a, as a host of a TV show. And before that, I was a TV producer. You know, booking guests, you'd see people, you know, you've seen them, Ryan. People on TV crash and burn. They might be great. They might be great intellectuals. You might be, oh, this guy's going to be great. You put them on TV because they haven't prepared. Their skills as a professor or as a doctor or as an actor, whatever it is, when it comes to the medium of what we work in, combative interview, it, it doesn't work. It falls apart. So I think that, that, so I would say, yes, you need to prepare. It's a major theme of this book. And I devote the last third of the book, the last kind of four of the last five chapters to 
building your confidence, staying calm, how to do research and how to actually prepare your delivery. That's a kind of almost a third of the book at the end. I start with the key principles to rhetoric, debate, public speaking. I then do, this is where I would say, no, you can occasionally wing parts of it, which is I do have a section, a middle section of the book is all about the tricks of the trade. What are the techniques you can use to get yourself out of a hole? What are the quick fixes you can use uh, when you're in trouble, uh, when you're on, you know, when you're being beaten up rhetorically. Uh, and I talk about how to deal with the gish galloper, the person who comes, the Trump type person who comes with bullshit to overwhelm you with bullshit. How do you deal with that? I talk about how do you structure your speech? How do you do a quick fix when it comes to confidence? How do you fake it? Uh, you know, fake it to make it. Um, all of these things are in the book. How do you use booby traps? to trip people up in an argument, a debate, an interview. Very important uh, skill that some people think is unfair, but I don't. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of practical stuff in the book. I actually devote a chapter in the book to ad hominem arguments and why I think they're totally justifiable and legitimate and why you should actually use them. Because we live in a world where, oh, you don't go ad hom. Ad hom is a logical fallacy. Ad hom is rude. Ad hom is bad. No, actually, there's a very good argument for why you should actually be questioning the credibility, qualifications, expertise of your opponent. And so when you started this podcast, I remember you saying that you wanted to do something deeper and more thoughtful, that you were tired of kind of being pigeonholed only as the guy who was going to own your opponent crossfire style. And it made me realize, and I want to get your take on this, that, that in some ways, and, and you allude to this in the book too, that in, in some ways, being an innately gifted speaker can be something of an intellectual curse. And you, you could think about it as similar to how like inheriting a ton of money might be great, but might also make you lazy. It'd be kind of the same thing as how a superstar athlete might need to train, might train a little bit less. They might practice a little bit less because they're still going to be able to kind of beat their opponents on the field. And the intellectual corollary would be something like if you're an incredibly gifted debater, in some ways you have to think a little bit less and interrogate your own belief system less because you'll always be able to kind of convince yourself and convince others that you're right, even if you're not right. And you talk in the book about how debating should never be a substitute for learning or for actually being right. And it, but as somebody who is like kind of without a doubt, like the best debater I've ever met, and maybe the best one out there. Like, how do you combat that tendency and make sure your mind always kind of stays crisp? Well, first of all, that's very kind of you, the checks in the mail. Uh, second, <laughs> of all, second of all, I, look, I talk about in the book about confirmation bias, right? Mm -hmm. we're, all, we're all guilty of that. We're all susceptible to it. This idea of, as you say, you know, convince yourself that you're right and then find the arguments to justify it. And, you know, if I didn't get into this in the book, but, you know, go back to ancient times and you have the sophists and this argument, the word we get today, sophistry, this argument that you're just arguing for arguing sake. You're just trying to win an argument without any substance. And some people have responded on social media to the title of the book, win every argument with a kind of snarky, well, why would you want to win every argument? Sometimes you should lose an argument. Well, obviously, duh, it's a title. I know that. And I've enjoyed losing some arguments and learning something. And to come back to deconstructed, I think that was about being known in the US as an interrogator, as the, you know, the Eric Prince guy as the guy who's, you know, debated at the Oxford Union. And I'm a big fan of that, that style of debate. I do it, obviously. I've just written a book about it. But also, yeah, nobody wants to get pigeonholed in the world. And I like to do a lot of different things. On my cable show, I do something different. I think if you look at my journalism over the years, Ryan, and someone who's known me for the last decade, I've done a lot of different things. You know, in the Huff Post, my journalism style was different. At Al Jazeera, it's been different. Uh, for Intercept, it's been different. And for MSNBC, it's been different. Now, underlying all of that is one common theme, with which I do like to interrogate ideas. I don't like to take things at face value. Now, you can do that in different ways. You can do that in a grand debating style 
uh, on stage at the Oxford Union in front of a live audience where you're trying to pick apart Eric Prince's position on mercenaries. Or you can do that, as I did on Deconstructed, in long-form interviews with interesting thinkers, uh, as you and I have done over the years, trying to understand an argument from all sides and going really deep into the detail, which unfortunately in our media industry, which is time poor, uh, gets lost. And that is something I miss. I'm very open about this. I miss a lot of that from Intercept days, from Al Jazeera English days, in that cable news has a lot of pros, but one of the big cons is you are time poor. You're trying to jam a lot of stuff uh, into an hour with ad breaks. And, uh, you know, some of us try and go longer. Rachel Maddow is known for her very long A blocks, her very long, long form explainers. I've tried to do a lot of those. We've tried to do some deep dives on my Peacock streaming show right now. We do big, kind of long essays at the top of the show, podcast style almost, to try and break down an issue, whether it's the debt ceiling, whether it's, um, uh, you know, Nikki Haley's uh, career arc and flip-flops, whatever it is, we, we do that. But underlying it is the same premise, which is, you know, just to go through some of the, some of the chapter headings of my book, focus on feelings, not just facts. You know, appeal to people's hearts, not just their heads. Bring your receipts, like one of the mottos of my entire life and career. Always have your evidence. Um, be able to listen as well. People think speaking is just about speaking. It's not. It's also about listening. All of those uh, qualities, uh, you know, the, the ad hoc argument in the sense of questioning the credibility of the person you're speaking to, all of those skills, um, the art of the zinger, which is very good, as you know, for kind of viral moments, is all about the kind of one line. All those things that are in the book as chapter headings, as chapters, are things I've brought to my journalism wherever I am, whether I was at Intercept, whether I was at Al Jazeera English, whether I'm at MSNBC. And I'm the point of writing this book, I have many reasons for writing this book, but one of them is um, for my colleagues, for fellow journalists in the media industry. I, I, you know, I'm very critical of the media on both sides of the Atlantic uh, as to where we have fallen short. And I think there are certain things we could improve. And one of those is holding power to account in a much more better and focused way. All right, so, so for this episode, I want to go through some of your greatest hits and, and draw out some of the lessons that we can take from them. And what I liked about your book is that that's, this is how, kind of how you structure it. Like, here's, here's generally how you do something. Here's a tip. And then here's an example of how I did it. And then, you can, and then it helps, helps it land. So first, you're probably, and you tell me if you agree with this, your, your most viral debate ever has to be that one at the Oxford Union where the debate was about, is Islam a peaceful religion? Is, is, do, you think that's, do you think that's right? I think so. I think so. I think in terms of actual pure debating, I mean, there have been interview clips that have gone equally viral, but that one had more than 10 million views. Mm -hmm. It went crazy in the Muslim world in particular. Like, I still get, like, free cab rides and free dinners um, from kind of Arab and Pakistani friends I bump into and people, I, or Arab Pakistani friends I make, uh, because people say, you're that guy from the, even if they don't know my name, they're like, you're that guy from the YouTube video. Um, so uh, that's, it's always been fun. It, that was the one that went really global. A lot of Americans got to know me before I'd moved to the US uh, from this debate. And just for your listeners, it was 2013. It was May, it was 10 years ago. I mm -hmm. uh, can't believe it's 10 years ago. And it was the day after a terrorist attack in the UK, just ironically and tragically, which killed a British soldier. And the Oxford Union hosts this debate. Um, this house believes Islam is a religion of peace. And, I make, and I'm the final speaker for the propositions I'm making that case. Daniel talked about my article in the New Statesman, which got me a lot of flack, where I talked about the anti-Semitism that is prevalent in some parts of the Muslim community, which indeed it is. Uh, of course, I didn't say in that piece that it was caused by the religion of Islam. In fact, uh, modern anti-Semitism in the Middle East was imported from, finish the sentence, 
Christian, Judeo-Christian Europe where I believe some certainly bad things happened to the Jewish people. In fact, Tom Friedman, Jewish-American columnist in the New York Times, told me in this very chamber last week that he believed, had Muslims been running Europe in the 1940s, six million extra Jews would still be alive today. So I'm not going to take lessons in anti-Semitism from someone who's here to defend the Judeo-Christian values of a continent that murdered six million Jews. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Yes. Absolutely. Well, I'm about to make that point. No, 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 I'm about to make that point. You're right. I agree with you. I agree with you. I agree with you 110%. That is my point. I don't think Europe is evil or bad. I'm a very proud European. I don't want to judge Europe on the basis, but if we're going to play this gutter game where we pull out the Bali bombing and we pull out examples of anti-Semitism in the Islamic community, then of course I'm going to come back and say, well, hold on. And can you give us a little bit of that, the backstory on that one? Was this a kind of rip the speech up moment? That's, it's, it's a really good question because so I prepare the speech and I say in the book, different people prepare their speeches in different ways. You can memorize it. That's the hardest way. Ancient Greece style or David Cameron style. You can do cue cards, which is a common form, bullet points, just have your key bits. Or you write out the whole thing, but you don't read from it. You know it well enough that it's just there. And that's my own personal preference. I tell people, try it out. Try out all three. Everyone's different. Um, so I had written out an entire speech on the train on the way to Oxford. I was a journalist at the HuffPost at the time. And I go to the Oxford Union to do this debate, knowing there's a lot of pressure because there's been this terrorist attack the day before. Surely we're going to lose. No one's going to say Islam is a religion of peace the day after two Islamist terrorists have just murdered a British soldier in, the, in, the, in broad daylight on a London street. So I go there, but the opposition speakers who all speak before me are so bigoted, are so ignorant that, yeah, I get really mad and you see I get mad. And I talk about it in the book where, you know, a lot, I tear up, I do tear up, not physically, but I do kind of ignore a lot of my speech. And I spend a lot of time just rebutting them, mocking them, taking their arguments apart. Uh, I, go, I went over my time. You can hear the bell go ding, ding, ding. And I keep going. But it was important because, as I say in the book, you have to bring some passion and authenticity to your presentations. If you're doing a debate on Islam and you're a Muslim and you're facing bigotry, like a bit of how dare you, sir, goes a long way. And also, you know, I had my receipts. I had my polling and my statistics and my research and my reports and my studies. And I, and I deployed them all. But yeah, it was a lot of um, I have to be able to stand up to this thing. And we won that debate. We, we kind of, I was shocked that we won that debate, uh, but we won by more than 100 votes. And people should just go Google that one. It's well worth watching in full. So I don't want, I don't want to play the whole thing here. Let's move, I want to move to, to a couple clips. Let's, let's start with, and this is, you talk about this one in chapter 11. Uh, this is, a, this is a, a Trump advisor, and this is an example of the, uh, the thing that you called the Gish Gallop, or thing that, that is called the Gish Gallop. It's a guy named Steve Rogers. Jose, can you, can you play that first one? When he says we're the only country in the world where a person comes in and has a baby, and that baby is essentially a citizen of the United States, is that true or false? No, it's false. It's a misstatement. That mean, doesn't a mean it's a lie. Okay. okay. Uh, he said there were riots going on in California against illegal immigration and so-called sanctuary cities. Uh, were there any riots in California? Oh, yes, there were. There were a lot of civil disturbances. Where were the a riots? Lot, where were lot. the riots? Can you tell me uh, where Oakland, they were? Oakland, California. There, was, there were street skirmishes in um, Los Angeles. Oh, yeah, no, that's a no, fact. The Californ- I, no, no, hold on. A- the spokesman for the California Police Chiefs Association says there, was no, there were no riots taking yeah. place as a result of sanctuary city policy. There were no riots. He just made it up. When he was asked to say where they were, he said, go look for them. I can give you many more. He said during the campaign that there's six to seven steel facilities that are going to be opened up. There are no. U.S. Steel has not announced any facilities. Why did he say they've announced new facilities? That's a lie, isn't it? 
No, it isn't, because they are, there are a lot of companies opening up. There are steel facilities that are going to be opening up, or I think no, no, they, they sorry, actually want to Sorry, Stephen, that's not what he said. I know, you, I, I know it's difficult for you. I know you want to try and defend him. But he no, said, it isn't difficult well, for okay, me. Well, OK, let me read the quote. <laughs> let me read the quote to you. U.S. Steel just announced that they're building six new steel mills. That's a very specific claim. U.S. Steel have not announced six new steel mills. They have said they have not announced six new steel mills. There's no evidence of six new steel mills. He just made it up. And he repeated it. He didn't just say it I once. Will- Look, I don't know of what context these uh, statements were made, but I could tell you this. The president of the United States has been very responsive to the American people, and the American people are doing well. Look, they, That's people fine. can you look can, at me and the say, American Steve Rogers lied. Well, and the president can be a liar. There's no contradiction between those two statements. I, I am not going to say the president of the United States is a liar. No, I know I'm you're not, not but I've that. just put to you a multiple right. lies and you've not been able to respond to any of them. Let me ask you this. I did uh, respond to them. What didn't happen is you didn't hear what you wanted to hear. What did That's I want to hear? Happen. I wanted to hear that there are no you, steel mills. You wanted, you just you wanted to up. hear me say, no, not, well, let's go on. <laughs> uh, Maddie, what, what you're so particularly good at is just not letting people off the hook. Uh, how, did you, how did you prep for that? Because... It's, it, seem, it seems like a difficult thing to, to grapple with. Yeah, it was. And, and it was interesting was this was post the 2018 midterms. This is two years, less than two years into the Trump presidency. People are still grappling with how do you cover this guy? And we, we were all grappling with it. I was at Al Jazeera English at the time. And you're thinking, if you get a Trump person on, you know what they're going to do. They're going to BS. They're going to they're gonna ramble. They're going to kind of flood the zone with nonsense. What do you do in that situation? And my team and I decided we need a theme. The theme of the interview is that Trump's a liar. The Washington Post had already documented at that point more than 10,000 lies. And we thought, what do we do? We pick a handful and pick one we really want to focus on, the steel facilities you mentioned. A brazen lie. Like, there's no, there's no kind of, it's a half-truth, it's a misstatement. No, it just, he just made it up. There was zero evidence. There are no, the steel mills they don't exist. exist. The right. company says they don't exist. He plucked it out of thin air. And yeah, so I talk about in the book this tactic that Trump and his acolytes do, and not just Trump, people would argue Vladimir Putin, a lot of fascists use this tactic, uh, which is called the Gish Gallop. And it actually comes um, from the um, from the creationist world, from the world of creationist debating. A lot of creationist Christians uh, love to debate evolutionary, uh, love to debate evolutionary biologists. And there was a one famous guy called Dwayne Gish, and what he used to do is he would just trot out nonstop one line after another of kind of pseudoscientific, seemingly legitimate sounding things that you couldn't rebut, that no sane, normal person could rebut all of it in the space of 5, 10, 15 minutes. So it became known as the Gish Gallop, overwhelming your opponent, burying them in a deluge of distortions, deflections, distractions. Trump does it so well, and so do his minions. So what we wanted to do, and what I say in the book, is there's a three-step process for stopping that. And this is advice I would give to listeners involved in debates, people who are just arguing with someone in a, in a bar or a pub or at the Thanksgiving table or interviewing a Trump spokesperson. You've got to do a three-step process. You've got to, first of all, you've got to pick your battle. You can't rebut every lie. It's just not possible. They want to distract you with sheer quantity. You've got to pick one or two things you want to focus on. Number two, you've got to not budge. Once you've picked on it, don't budge. And number three, call it out. And I do that in that Steve Rogers interview. We came, we prepared, we got our receipts, we had our facts, we had our quotes. And then when he does what, he, what you just heard him do, I picked my battle. I said, no, look, steel. I'm not, you want to talk about other things. You want to talk about manufacturing? No, steel. What about the steel facilities? Don't let it go. Don't budge. Second, second point. Don't budge. He said, 
you got it. You, a lot of interviewers, unfortunately, just move on to the next question, which is gold for an interviewee who's trying to dodge answering it. My position is no. I'd rather do, less is more. I'd rather do fewer questions, but stick to the topic until I get an answer or non-answer. And then third of all, call it out. You heard the you heard the bit at the end. He says, "Let's move on." Uh, and I say after that, of course you want to move on because you have no answers. You got to call out what's going on. You got to identify the tactic um, to expose to the audience this is all BS. From your um, adversary or, or opponent or interviewee. So yeah, it, we, for me, that chapter on the Gish Gallop is a crucial chapter because we live in an age where there isn't much good faith debate. Like I'm a believer in good faith argument, good faith debate. Brian, you know very well today's Republican Party, today's conservative movement isn't interested in good faith debate. Uh, a lot of it is just pure BS. Uh, just trying to grind you down. And, and, you know, we've had this debate. Journalists have had this debate. Who do you platform? Who do you not platform? I have a personal rule on my show that I won't platform an election denier. I won't platform a climate denier, just like I wouldn't platform a Holocaust denier. Um, other people will have election deniers on, even within my own network, each to their own, I say. But that's my position. And you have to draw a line and say, what do you define as good faith debate? For me personally, I wouldn't have, you know, I, that was 2018 when I debated Steve Rogers on that Al Jazeera show. Today, Steve Rogers, I'm guessing, I don't know the man personally, I would assume he's an election denier if he's still a loyal Trumpist. <laughs> would I have him on again? Probably not, because I, I've now made a decision that debating the election, debating the big lie, is pointless. It helps no one but the big liars. So, you know, something that's not in the book, maybe for a sequel to this book, if everyone buys it and it becomes a success, is when to walk away from a debate, because that's mm-hmm. an important discussion as well. When do you not have the argument? Because it's actually pointless. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Let's do uh, let's do John Bolton next. But first, I think a, a lot of people are probably wondering how you keep getting people to come on to your show. Like it's a great question. A normal person would look at the track record and say, you know what? Speaking of knowing when not to debate, I think I'm going to pass on this request. I have my own theory for why you've continued to be able to get people to come on your show. But I'm curious from your perspective. I think it's a mixture of things. I think it is. When I was at Al Jazeera English doing the show at the Oxford Union, I do think it was partly the prestige of being able to come to the Oxford Union, especially for a lot of Americans, especially for someone like Eric Prince. People say, why did Eric Prince agree to do an interview? I'm like, I don't know. I wouldn't have done an interview with me if I was him. But he did it. And I think it was partly the kind of, a lot of these people, you know, and I don't say this in a bad way, but ego. 
like mm-hmm. people in public life. They're in public life because they like being on camera, on TV. They have a high opinion of themselves. I think a lot of the right-wingers, and John Bolton is a great example of this. I think people like John Bolton are intellectually arrogant. And again, I don't say that in a bad way. I mean, John Bolton's a smart guy. The guy was a Yale political union debater. Uh, the guy has basically bested most of the interviewers who have tried to take him down. Um, as much as I loathe his politics and what he's done, he's clearly very good at rhetoric. He's very good at argument and debate and he knows his stuff. So someone like that thinks, well, I'm, you know, this is not, so it's the prestige of somewhere like the Oxford Union or, or cable TV primetime. It's, uh, it's the intellectual arrogance that, well, nothing's going to happen to me. I'm, I'm really good at what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's just lack of preparation. To come back to the point, Ryan, you made earlier, like mm-hmm. I say in the book, don't go into any debate or argument without having prepared everything. Steel manned your arguments, prepared all your arguments, have all your receipts, check out the other side of the argument, know both sides, as John Stuart Mill would say, and do research on your opponent. A lot of people don't research me. I've benefited from the fact mm-hmm. that I flew under the radar for a while. When I moved to the U.S., I was a new unknown quantity. Uh, Even in the UK for Al Jazeera English, it's a global show that I did there. I won't say the name of this person, but a very, very prominent government official from a foreign country did an interview with me on my Al Jazeera English show up front. And the mic was up before the interview began. And they turned to their assistant and they said, who is this person again? Oh, good Lord. Which I love. I love the fact (laughs) that they turned up for interview, not even knowing my name. I was like, okay, well, here we go. And that same person then complained to the Qatari government afterwards on behalf of their government saying I was unfair to them. Um, So uh, yeah, I think it's a lack of preparation as well. But yes, let's not jinx it because I love having people on. I've got people on, I've got people on in all sorts of roundabout ways. Dan Crenshaw, congressman from Texas and I had an argument on Twitter and I just said to him, well, why don't you come on my show and continue this? And he agreed. Mm -hmm. And it was a great bit of TV, which I talk about in the book. All right, let's, let's roll this John Bolton speaking of the Yale debater. Let me ask you this. Uh, can I ask, how much of your antipathy uh, and your criticism towards well, Iran, I know you've been very critical of Iran. Over 15 minutes. 15 minutes yeah, is nearly up. Let me ask you this. How, mu- how much of your antipathy towards Iran is to do with geopolitics? How much of it is to do with the fact that you've had a long association with a group called the MEK, which was once a terrorist group banned by the State Department while you work there? You don't mention it in your book. You, I, I looked in your book. There's no mention of the MEK. I think you took tens of thousands of dollars for several speeches. Just wondering how much that influences your policy on Iran. You know that I took tens of thousands of dollars from speeches for speeches at liberal universities in the United States. Uh, this is uh, this is this is really about as low as it gets. The the fact is that Hillary Clinton, perhaps someone you support took the MEK off the U.S. list of terrorist organizations. How about that? I speak what yeah, I she believe. Took, she took it off in 2012. You were speaking with them in 2010 when they were still a banned group. Yeah, no, look, that, that, that you're simply wrong on your facts on this. I speak, no, you were there in I, Paris in 2010 speaking at the MEK rally when they were still a banned terrorist group, according to the State Department. my opinion. Nobody buys my opinion. And you can ignore that if you want. I'm very comfortable. I have never said anything other than what I believe. And we are now, sir, 20 minutes into this interview, which you said was for 15. I believe it's 15 minutes. I've got a timer going off in my ear. So, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, t- yeah. Tell us about that one. So that I, I love that clip uh, because it has everything. Uh, it has everything. So it has John Bolton, a guy who is a deeply odious figure, who's never really been held to account for his odious policies over the years. And there's another clip that people can watch where I pushed him on the Iraq war and whether he sleeps at night. And obviously no one actually ever asked him a basic moral question, how he feels about all the dead people uh, that he helped bring about. But that exchange on the MEK, I love because he'd never been asked about that. 
This guy has spoken at this group, the Mujahideen Echal, the MEK, a lot of American politicians, a lot of Democrats have also spoken at that group. But Bolton has been there for a while. And what I love about that is we did our homework. I went, I watched YouTube, I transcribed it myself. Um, this is for MSNBC, Peacock at the time. I'd left Al Jazeera English now and I said, look, I'm still going to bring the same style, the same research. We did our homework, a whole chapter on homework. We do our homework. So when you do your homework and when you plan out the interview, something I talk about in the book is role play. Role play anything you're going to do. Try and think about what's going to, they're going to say this, you're going to say this. Get a friend, get a colleague to talk you through what's going to happen. So when you do that, you know what's coming. So when I say you spoke in 2010, I know that he's going to say, well, Hillary Clinton delisted it. Well, no, she didn't. That was 2010. I'm ready with my comeback. Everything is planned out. You're not winging it. It's all there. I have a structure. I have a plan. And it's going fine because he's walking into all the kind of traps that have been set for him. I know exactly where he's going to go. I know exactly what he's going to say. I didn't know he's going to hide behind the clock and say, well, the time's up, which it wasn't. (laughs) That was a great moment because we were nowhere near 15 minutes, but it clearly showed that he wanted to end the interview without kind of walking out uh, dramatically. And it's just a great moment. It's a great moment to be able to put down your receipts, which are undeniable, unbeatable, unquestionable receipts, the facts see someone say, well, you're wrong on the facts and say, well, actually, no, the facts are on my side uh, and then have them hide behind the clock. So it was, it was, it, it does a lot of things that clip in terms of preparation, in terms of research, in terms of role playing, in terms of bringing your receipts, in terms of having the follow-ups and not just moving on to the next topic. It also shows the value of a book tour because I've, I've noticed that yes. you know, I'm able to get people that Very wouldn't true. want to talk to me otherwise when they have a book out. That's such a good point to go back to your earlier question of why people come on. They're promoting books as I am right now. There you go. That's right. Uh, so you mentioned Eric Prince being unable to resist the allure of the Oxford Union. So let, let's play that, that famous clip. You're a big supporter of Donald Trump. Uh, you've been questioned by special counsel Robert Mueller over the Russiagate investigation. He's looked at your laptop and your phones, I believe. You've also testified to Congress. In November 2017, you told Congress under oath that you played, quote, no official or really unofficial role in the Trump campaign. What you didn't tell Congress is that on August 3rd, 2016, uh, you were at a meeting during the campaign at Trump Tower with Don Jr., Trump's son, with Stephen Miller, then a campaign advisor to Trump, with George Nader, a former Blackwater colleague of yours who acts as a back channel to the Saudis, the Emiratis. He also happens to be a convicted pedophile. And also Joel Zamel, an Israeli expert on social media manipulation. How come you didn't mention that meeting to Congress, given it's so relevant to their investigation? Uh, I did as part of the part of the investigations. I certainly uh, disclosed any uh, any meetings. The very very not few the, I had. Not in the congressional testimony you gave to the House. We went through it. You didn't mention anything about August 2016 meeting in Trump Tower. I they did. specifically asked you what context you have, and you didn't answer that. Uh, I don't believe I was asked that question. You were asked whether any communic- formal communications or contact with the campaign. You said apart from writing papers, putting up yard signs. No, that's what you said. I've got the transcript of the conversation here. Sure. I mean, I might have been, uh, I, I think I was at Trump headquarters or the campaign headquarters. Trump maybe, Tower, uh, August 3rd, 2016. You, an Israeli dude, a back channel to the Emiratis and the Saudis, Don Jr., Stephen Miller. To, we're there to talk about Iran policy. Are you there to talk about Iran policy? Mm-hmm. Don't you think that's something important to disclose to the House Intelligence Committee while you're under oath? I did. You didn't. We just went through the testimony. There's no mention <laughs> of the Trump Tower meeting in August 2016. Why not? I don't know if they got the transcript wrong. They got the transcript wrong. So if we go, I, I, I don't know. I remember. I remember uh, certainly. Discussing I mean, this is a problem for you because we know that Robert Mueller he hasn't been able to establish collusion yet, but he has got a lot of guys 
for lying to the authorities and not telling the whole truth. Is that a problem now? That even if you accidentally didn't tell them, that could come back and haunt you? I fully cooperated and I haven't heard, anybody, I haven't heard from anybody in more than nine months. I mean, I, I mean, members of Congress, after they discover this meeting, have talked about certain witnesses not telling the truth, but you believe you told Congress about this meeting, even though it's not in the transcript, just to be clear. I, I believe so, yeah. Oi, <laughs> brutal. What, what were the actual, what was the fallout from that? It's a good question, because obviously Eric Prince, <laughs> Eric Prince remains a free man. Um, the fallout, the short-term fallout, I mean, it was a Trump DOJ, but Adam Schiff, who was then the House Intelligence Committee chair, took my interview clip. It was played to him that Sunday on Meet the Press. Um, and I was like, oh, wow, this is, going, this is getting big. It had already gone viral. It had millions of views online. And uh, he referred it to the DOJ as an example of, you know, was it, untru- was it untruthful testimony? Um, that investigation, in the end, I don't know what happened to that. It's a great question. I should go back and check into it. But what was interesting about that was that Prince had been on multiple interviews uh, up until that point. He wasn't on a book tour, but he was doing a media tour promoting his idea of a mercenary army in Afghanistan. That's why he uh, had agreed to come on the show. He was promoting something at the time. And it was amazing that no one had actually, we sat, my team and I sat and went through the transcript. I printed out and brought it with me into the Oxford Union Chamber and waved it in my hand. By the way, a prop, always very useful to have in a debate or argument. You can't beat actual physical receipts in your hand. Also, always great to have a live audience. I say in the book, the first chapter of the book is all about the audience. How do you use an audience? In that clip, just listening back to it 10 years later, the audience laughing is almost like a force amplifier, force multiplier. Mm -hmm. In that, you know, if it's just me and him in a room on our own with a cameraman, he can get out of more stuff than he can when he's on stage and hundreds of people are laughing at the ridiculousness of his responses. And there is an example of where we've, we've gone through the transcript. You know, a lot of interviewers aren't able to do that. When he says, well, I said it, it was in transcript, they'll just move on to the next question. I'm able to say, but you didn't say it in the transcript because we went through it. Not only do we go through it, we have it here in our hands. So it was a powerful moment. And I think, you know, it, it helped me get my current job when I was interviewed at MSNBC. The, the bosses made it clear that they knew me from the Eric Pitts clip. Hmm. Uh, that's how they knew this British dude who worked at the Intercept in Al Jazeera at that point. Um, it certainly made me well known in American media circles. Um, and again, it was because... Like with John Bolton, you have this kind of right-wing odious figure who's done awful things, but has never really been challenged on them, despite doing multiple interviews. It's not like Prince or Bolton run away from cameras. They do loads of interviews. They just never seem to get caught in any of them. Uh, And I made it my goal to make sure that I hold them to account, whether it's on Iraq and the MEK with John Bolton, or whether it was on the Trump Tower meeting uh, and and, and many other issues with Eric Prince. There's many, I urge people to go watch that interview. We talk about a lot of stuff where we catch him out on, um, for example, his reference to Iraqis as barbarians, which he tried to deny, but I had his book and the quotes ready to go. So for me, that was a great interview for me in my career. But I also think, as you say, it had an impact. It had members of Congress discussing it, sending it to the DOJ. It it reminds you of the value of interviews. Some people think, well, there's no point in interviewing politics. You're not going to get anywhere in this day of spin and spin doctors and media training. But no, there are moments that can still make a difference. And that's why I'm a great believer in the interview. I'm a great believer in the power of debate. And it, I think it really does show the value of that physical receipt. And I think with the Bolton interview, mentioning that his speech was in Paris at a rally was so, somewhat tantamount to a physical receipt because it had so many details. The specificity. If yeah. you'd have just said, no, no, you spoke at 20, in 2010, and he'd say, well, no, I didn't, then it's like, you're kind of going back and forth. He well, said, I had the she clip. said, right. I was going to play the clip, but remember, he was saying, your time's up, your time's up. So right. I didn't even play he'd the clip. He'd have been gone by the time the clip was exactly. playing. I had the clip. But right. And so then when you have the physical 
paper, like here, here's the transcript. Then the only thing that's left to him is to say, well, it must, somebody typed it wrong, which then, as you <laughs> said, yeah, it draws, it draws the laughter. It draws ridicule. And, and you know, the only option I say in the book was, what's he supposed to do? Run out of the hall? Uh, Joey Tribbiani style in Friends? Does he just run out when he's caught embarrassed? And what was funny is of all the guests I've interviewed on that show, which was called Head to Head on, on Al Jazeera English, the only two guests have basically left without speaking to me after the show, just completely silent in the green room afterwards. And one was Eric Prince. <laughs> Unsurprising. Who had a very firm handshake, you'll be shocked. Shocking. So for the, for the last one, You've, you've got a kind of a fun clip here with the Saudi ambassador, uh, Abdullah al-Mulimi. Let's play that one. This is from Upfront. Many people might say that's a good thing. There should be democracy in Syria. There should be an elected government in Syria. But they might also wonder, why are you okay with an elected government in Syria, but not an elected government in Saudi Arabia? If the people of Syria get to choose their own rulers or head of state, why can't the people of Saudi Arabia well, choose go, their own head of go state? Go and ask the people of Saudi Arabia. Are you can't, happy with, with your... Of course you can. No, it's of illegal course, in Saudi Arabia to call are, for a change in the government, to call for the king to well, come I didn't, I didn't say office. go and call for a change of government. Okay. I said go and call and ask the Saudi people whether they are happy with their system of How government. How do I do and What's the process? In any way you want. In any Opinion way you want. Poll. Opinion polls, anything. What about and an election? Will, and you will find, well, we will have elections at some point of time. We've started with municipal elections. But elections is not the panacea for everything. No, I agree. Uh, but you said you want well, elections in Syria. Well, I'm saying why not have elections in Saudi as well? Well, be just because there are elections in Syria doesn't mean there have to be elections somewhere else. I said elections, and you agreed, is not a panacea for everything. The, the key question is, is the population content and happy and satisfied with the form of government that they have? And I uh, uh, would like to claim that if you went to Saudi Arabia and if you conducted a survey in Saudi Arabia in any way, official, formal, otherwise, you will find a, a high degree of support for the system of government in, in Saudi Arabia. Isn't that partly because if they do say they don't want this government, they want no. another government, they'll go to jail. No, It's against no. the law in Saudi Arabia to call for a change in the system of government. But that's not the issue. The issue that I'm is saying, the issue. No, no, it's How not. How can I as a it's, Saudi it's say not. I want a different system of government if it's illegal <coughs> for me to say that? I'm saying that if there was a way by which you can ask the common people in the street, anonymously, privately, There is, anyway, it's called voting. Well, I, we, voting along the lines of Western democracy is not no, necessarily... No, along the lines of whatever you want the, in Syria. Okay, well, I mean, even, even that is not the solution for, for, uh, for a system of government. What is important is the pact between the governed and the governor, uh, the, the mutual acceptance. I can tell you that that mutual acceptance is much higher in Saudi Arabia than in almost any other country in the world. Yeah, beyond how painful that is, uh, what, do you, what, what lessons should people draw from that one? Well, the lesson is don't do what I did and go into a Saudi consulate as a journalist because that was pre-Jamal Khashoggi mm. days, but I was able to leave alive from the Saudi consulate at the UN. That's where Ambassador Moalami serves. Um, that interview, and actually, let me just make it, without wanting to bang my own drum too much, all the clips you played do one important, make one important overall point, which is, you have a Trump supporter, Steve Rogers. You have Eric Prince. You have John Bolton. You have a Saudi ambassador. What do they all have in common? They're not people who are shy of the media. They're all people who do a lot of interviews. Why did those four clips, all of them go viral, like millions and millions of views? Because what I did was I asked them questions and did things with them and held them to in a way that they hadn't been held before. And that is what I say to people. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book, which is try and do what I do or try and what I do is not that hard. I'm not coming here to say, I'm amazing. Look how unique I am. No, I'm saying anyone else could have done what I did prior to what I did, but they didn't. 
And I'm saying, you can do it. It can be done. Let me show you how. And, you know, some of the different lessons in the book, you take that Saudi clip in particular. Saudi Ambassador is a guy who does lots of interviews with Western media. Um, and I came along with one goal in mind, which is I want to talk about democracy, the lack of democracy in Saudi Arabia. And everything leads to that goal. I have a clear goal, and that's where I want to get to. That's my, you know, that's the end route of the journey I'm on. And I deploy a multiple different things. So there's a chapter in the book on bring your receipts. I have my receipts. When he says, well, you know, what about, you know, it's not a panacea. Well, what about Syria? You just said Syria. That's my receipt. I'm quoting him back to him. Uh, when I say, for example, there's a chapter on booby traps. What's, you know, in, in the media, politicians like to call it the gotcha question, right? I'm sure someone's accused you once of asking me a gotcha question. <laughs> gotcha questions are fine. I mean, that's, politicians use the phrase gotcha to try and dismiss a totally legitimate question. What a gotcha question is doing is showing you that you've got yourself trapped. Nothing wrong with showing someone that. Nothing, I don't think there's anything untoward with that. I do a chapter on booby traps. This idea that you unbalance your opponent by kind of trapping them in their own words, in their own contradictions. And with the Saudi ambassador, I led him to that point. I led him into that booby trap. I, the reason and I brought up Syria, when I asked him, do you support elections in Syria? I knew that he's going to say yes. And the only reason I brought up elections in Syria is because I was going to say, so what about Saudi Arabia then? He had just, what you should have seen his face. He just walked into that trap. He knew now he's on uncomfortable terrain. He doesn't want to talk about democracy in Saudi Arabia. And then there's the art of the zinger, the one-liner. Do you have one good line, one good put down that just stops everything in their tracks? And my line there, as you heard, was, well, if you can find one way to tell, ask the people, I'm like, yeah. It's called voting. <laughs> Boom. He doesn't really have a comeback to that. If you have that one line that shuts everything down, what that's, you when call it? that's when he stammers. That's when he stammers. You call it a mic drop. Most, you can call yeah. it, I call it a zinger, whatever you want to call it, that one liner. So it, that clip shows you a mix of different things. It shows, you know, the planning and preparation of what is the interview about. It shows you how, the importance of bringing receipts. It shows you the importance of setting your little traps. It shows the importance of having the one liner, the zinger. And yeah, he, he wasn't expecting any of that. And I, I, uh, I was just glad to leave with the tapes. Right. You, you can see how you walk him into that, uh, that amazing line of him saying, if only there was a, if you could find a confidential way that people could express their, <laughs> their preferences on yes. public policy, yeah. uh, then, then you would be able to find out um, what people thought. And I think that's a good place to end it because you know, if you go back to the Oxford Union debate over uh, whether or not uh, Islam is a peaceful religion, I think pretty much everybody kind of listening to this can say, well, that's incredibly impressive, not, but not something that I could see myself being able to actually do. But these other clips actually are, with, you know, I think, within the capacity of, of most people to do if they just do their work ahead of time and, and, and focus on the interview and don't, and don't, let it, don't let it go. And so that, that's where I think this, this book is so valuable. And I, th I think I really encourage anybody who you know, I can't think of anybody actually who wouldn't benefit from this. Like who, who, who in this world doesn't need to argue at some point with yeah, somebody? I mean, I, I, well, that's, that's the point I make. I make the point in the introduction that people like Dale Carnegie and others are like, oh, arguments are bad, run away from them. And my point is I like to run towards arguments, partly out of my personal preference, but also whether we like it or not, everyone at some point or another, every man, woman or child wants to win an argument, needs to win an argument, and I believe can win an argument. We're all capable of doing it, having that debate. And I say in this book, here are some of the tricks and techniques. Here are some of the tried and tested principles going back 2,000 years. Like much greater minds than me have developed a lot of this stuff. I'm, I'm, I don't claim to be original on a lot of this stuff. I'm bringing tried and tested methods from ancient Greeks, ancient Romans, from Churchill, JFK, MLK. And I'm throwing in my own experiences as well. And I'm saying, here's how you learn it. Here's how you develop it. Here's how you teach it. 
And the book is called Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. Mehdi, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Ryan. It was great to be back on Deconstructed. And that was Mehdi Hassan, and that's our show. This is the outro that he wrote years ago. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcast at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. And Mehdi, could you have done that uh, that outro by heart? I could. As you said it, I was like, wow, it's been a few <laughs> years. Although every name in that has changed. Uh, That's except true. for Bart Warshaw, who did the fantastic music. That's right. That's the one consistent name in that outro. That name but will never change. it brought back some great memories. And I love this deconstructed audience. So thank you for listening. All right. Thank you. See you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 